Good morning, greetings in Jesus' name. It's good to be in the house of God with his people again today. I plan to preach a number of messages from 1 Timothy. Um, I'm one of those who has preached a lot of times from pieces of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, especially getting ready for ordinations and all. And they're known as, as, the, um, as the pastoral epistles, but I don't know that I ever preached from beginning to the end. So um, I'm attempting to do that. <clears throat> we believe uh, these, this, this letter here, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, came from uh, the writings of Paul, obviously inspired by God. And there's certainly uh, direct uh, instruction here for church leaders, but I think it's very applicable to all kinds of kingdom work, whether it's parenting, uh, teaching, board involvements, business, uh, just everyday living for God's people. This letter was uh, obviously penned for Timothy, uh, we believe was a convert of, of Paul's. And Timothy was, Timothy with leading this church here at Ephesus. And as I, as I just looked over this passage earlier this week, um, there's two kind of significant themes um, in these first 11 verses that kind of stood out to me, and there's, there's others also, but two that I, I think are significant. The first one is the charge that uh, Timothy is given in verse uh, 3 and 4, a charge to stay at Ephesus and um, preach sound doctrine, preach truth even when it's not welcome. Stay and preach truth. And that's kind of where I took the, the title of the message, just abide. He was called to abide at Ephesus and be true to the charge he was given. The second theme uh, is the idea of, of commandments, the end of commandments. And of course it goes in, into what we consider the law. So, so what, is, what is law today for us and, and what should it mean to us and do for us? Uh, just a bit of background on, on this uh, church and the letters. Uh, Paul was writing from Macedonia and he sent this letter uh, to Timothy with an urgency that Timothy uh, remains in, in, at his post in Ephesus. He says here he besought Timothy to stay at Ephesus. I don't think it was... I don't think it was easy for Timothy to be at Ephesus at this time. I'm quite certain it was very different than preaching from this pulpit this morning. What he was asked to do was, was not easy and probably wasn't very much appreciated by a lot of people, including some in the church. So I think Timothy was in a tough time at a tough time in life. Uh, it almost would appear like there was even ordained elders in the church who needed to be called out and, and set straight on doctrinal error. Uh, I think there was on sound doctrine circulating uh, among 
God's people among converts, and I think it's safe to assume God's people were, were getting hurt, deceived, and led astray. And Paul was really, really concerned about this as he was uh, laboring in Macedonia, and he probably heard reports of what was going on, what was being taught and emphasized, and so he writes this letter. I don't think it's presumptuous of us to assume that Timothy may have wanted out. At any rate, we see in verse 4 that Paul urges him to abide at Ephesus. I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus. So he was an overseer. Timothy was an overseer in the church. Uh, this is what location of um, the west side of present-day Turkey. Uh, history would indicate that there was around 3,000 3, people living in this city. Prominent among those 3,000 inhabitants was this um, idol worship of the goddess Diana. I read that uh, not, not all Bible uh, teachers agree that, that uh, how many of these pillars supported this temple, but it was over 100. Uh, some said 127. These pillars were 60 foot high. And um, this Diana God was known and worshipped, especially as it related to fertility. There was immorality, sensuality, uh, practices that were just rampant in this temple or outside of this temple. You'll remember from, uh, I think it's Acts 19, uh, this was the same city where the silversmiths were extremely upset at Paul because so many of the temple worshipers were turning to Christ. They were turning away from the, the, the pagan worship of Diana and all that went with that immorality, and they were believing in Christ. And there were some silversmiths that were really upset and, upset and concerned about uh, this turning of faith. And uh, they, they were... I think silver, these silversmiths were probably engaged in, in making uh, small replicas of the, of the idol or of the temple of Diana. And um, business and income was at stake, and so they took Paul to task, and I think they instigated an uproar there. But they wanted the sound doctrine to be squelched. And now, again, we don't know for sure exactly how long this was from, from that particular event. The church was born, uh, the, the revolts had taken place. Well, I think it was probably around five years later, uh, Timothy gets this, this letter from, from his mentor, Paul. Uh, Timothy, you, you, you've got some hard work to do. You, do. you need to do some hard, necessary work in your church. And, and again, I repeat, I don't think we're reading too much into the text that Timothy may have been inclined to bail. The great exciting revival of yesteryears probably had abated some, as revivals usually go. Emotions had subsided. The worship of Diana and the false teachers was very much alive, and it wasn't going away. Possibly some of the converts had lost out in their fervency uh, for Christ, maybe even recanted. At any rate, false teaching and lots of pressure was, was, was abounding here and was reality for these church leaders. 
for Timothy. The word besought in verse 3 is this Greek word, uh, par pargalis, but it means to beg or urgently, or urgently, to beg for urgently or anxiously. And so you can imagine Paul down at Macedonia. This is, this is the urgency. He, he was anxious for the church there where Timothy was leading. And so I think it can easily be translated that Timothy, that Paul was just begging Timothy to, to stay the course. Stay where you are. And as some of you know, there are many occasions when moving or leaving your present post looks sort of, e sort of nice, sort of attractive. Uh, it looks easier and much more appealing to move than it does to remain or stay in a difficult situation. And certainly, there are right times for us to move. It's the right thing to do at times. Uh, right now, Peckway is, is looking for some families to move to a church plant. And possibly the morning's message to abide and be faithful to your charge will be more applicable in a few years down the road than what it is today. After the excitement and the newness wears off a bit and some hard things are in place, some hard things are facing us. Paul himself moved on occasion. And I think the overall concern here is, is let's be careful about the motivation that yeah, initiates us leaving. Jonah, he, he, uh, he wanted to get away from God and, his, and the call God had on his life. And I've, I've thought about that, uh, uh, that occasion a little bit here as I was preparing for the message. Uh, maybe we aren't always as honest as jo Jonah was about why he was running. Uh, you remember when he was, he was in the ship and after the sailors had thrown all the, all the cargo and everything, I guess, that they could possibly spare to lighten the ship and make it float better, uh, he, eventually they find Jonah and he tells them exactly why this storm is occurring. And he says, if you just... You just throw me in the drink, he says, you know, this storm will go away. He acknowledged he was running from God, didn't he? But I think we generally try to make good excuses for doing what we'd like to do. Jonah, he was pretty honest about why the storm was occurring. The enemy, our enemy, is a master at disguising a situation so that it appears to be the will of God. Let's, let's not allow ourselves to be bought by the enemy or be persuaded. The enemy has ways of making moves look appealing, especially when they're, the charge is hard and unpopular. And it just looks like leaving our current post would be so much easier. When many times it might actually be better if we persevered where we are currently placed. We see Jesus, where we see Satan do this to Jesus when he was in the wilderness. 
He tried to disguise it as something that was coming from the Word of God. He used the Word of God to, to, to try to persuade Jesus. Uh, he, was, he, it was, he was using a disguise, even using the Word of God. I want to just be clear to assure us that it's, it's certainly not, it's not always wrong to make a move. Sometimes it's the right thing to do. And when we wrestle with God in, in honesty and come to the place where he, we believe it's right to move, then so by all means, let's move. But let's be true to the charge. If you stay or if you go, abide and be faithful to the charge. I've noticed from both examples in the scriptures, from history and current observation, that God loves us so much that when the motives for moving are carnal and selfish, he is generally, generally kind enough to allow us to run up, again, run up against again at the next post. He, he, like, he, he loves us a lot. He has good things in mind for us. He has interesting ways of, of not making it so easy or pleasant for us just to have it our own, just to, for us just to have it our own way. And as you think about that, that's very kind of God, even when it's painful. So God obviously has some work here for Timothy to do at his current post. I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus. The second theme, or, or is this law and commands of God, I think it's important for us to understand that God has a goal in mind when he gives us commands or laws. He doesn't just pull them out of his hat just to see if we like to be obedient. There's, there's purpose for having commands and laws. You also know by reading the scriptures and from experience that many times these commands and laws are given to us in a negative context. Well, you think about a lot of God's commands and laws there begin with thou shalt not commit. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Be not conformed to this world. Be not unequally yoked. And there's probably hundreds of them. They're all kind of given in that negative context. But we can be assured that even if they're given in a negative context, even if it seems negative, the goal is really positive. The end result in finding yourself under those commands or laws are for our good. God has purpose in asking us not to do some things. And here we have an example right here in the text. Timothy was given a charge. Don't allow anything but sound doctrine to be preached in Ephesus. And we see more of this later in the letter. Uh, this sound doctrine thing just comes up again and again and again throughout the letters of the epistles. But he, he, was to, he was to deal very swiftly and decisively with false teaching. But the goal and the end is very positive. Let's, let's read verse 5. Now the end or the goal of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart 
and of a good conscience and of a faith on fame. And so here we have this negative command with a positive goal. We have love that comes from a pure heart. A pure heart has no ulterior motives, just truly loves. Uh, you have a conscience, a good, clean, open conscience. That, that reminds me of one that there's nothing bothering him. Everything is fessed up. Everything is taken care of. Goes to sleep at night. Nothing is bothering him. Do you know? Well, we'll get to this later. On feigned faith. Ah, we don't use the word on feigned very much. It's hardly used in today's vocabulary. But on faith, on fame just simply means a, it's real, it's true, uh, sincere. It's trusting in a big God that he has good things in mind when he asks us not to do some things. We'll, we'll get to this in a bit, but I'm suggesting that without laws in our lives, we would never know such wonderful things as a clean conscience and a pure heart. The laws of God, sound doctrine, was obviously important to Paul, to God, to Timothy. Important then, just as important today. We also need to remember that this was, this was the early church. This was new, fairly new converts. Many of these uh, people had been converted from either Judaism or paganism. They didn't have a long lineage of Christianity like most of us do today. Our fathers and grandfathers for generations taught us about God. That wasn't the case here in this church, for many of them at least. They were probably kind of like, you know, learning on the fly. And the teacher that could speak well, the preacher that could say some pretty nice uh, and Tice had some nice uh, direction for him. They were just kind of buying into it. Some were bringing in their Jewish laws and some were bringing in their pagan rituals and idols and mixing them with the gospel. Backing up a bit here to in verse 4 again, not only was Timothy to be concerned about sound doctrine, he was also to be sure not to allow himself and other church leaders to get distracted with teachings. It says here, let's fables and endless genealogies, stuff that, you know, isn't so important after all. Uh, last Sunday, we took some, some visitors home here from church, and it was the first time that I was introdu introduced to this doctrine of annihilation, annihilationism. I don't think I ever heard about that before. It's a doctrine that those lost in hell will eventually cease to exist after a period of time. This doctrine suggests that following a period of time experiencing hell, its awfulness, its anguish, its horribleness, that human souls consciously cease to exist after a while. Simply that the hell is not forever and eternal as the Word of God explicitly says it indeed is and does. Now, 
again, my, my simple understanding of the scriptures instructs me if there's a basis for an eternal heaven, there's also a basis for eternal hell. I, I don't understand why you would want to spend much time making a big difference. If you choose to be persuaded that heaven is forever, it seems to me you would have to be persuaded that the other is also true. Just looking at the plain, simple teaching of the scripture. And even if those who insist on believing annihilation, and even if they could or should be right, the insistence of believing it seems to me a moot point. Who would want to even spend a little bit of time in hell? Especially if God offers a way of escape. Even one night or an hour in such an awful place of anguish and torment would be terrible. Well, this, I'm told this particular doctrine is being discussed and debated today. And I said, I, I first heard about it last Sunday morning, and would you know, I took the recent sword and trumpet along with me for some reading time in my nap, and here there was an article at the very end of the sword and trumpet on this very doctrine. So I uh, appreciated Tim's encouragement for us to read Calvary Messenger. I echo that with sword and trumpet. Um, they have, throughout the decades, they have taken this thing of sound doctrine very seriously. And I appreciated the clarity that it at least brought to me in, in this concern. While it is certainly true that we will likely someday find out a few things about God and his kingdom and eternity that we don't completely know about today yet, he has told us, he has assured us that he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Let me read these verses here just to brush us up on what he's given us. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Second Peter 1, 3, 3 and 4. He has given us everything we need to understand our sinfulness, understand our need of a Savior, and adequately provided for that. And at the end, we can make it safely home and avoid this escape eternal judgment. You know, some things, some things don't matter so much. And there's some other things that really, really matter. I don't know that it matters so much whether at the end of the day, at the end of life, don't know if it matters so much whether hell is a hundred years duration or a million years durations. But it really does matter that we escape it. Endless genealogies. You know, Jesus, God gave us genealogies for a reason. And they're there for us to read at face value. But when things bring more questions than answers to the believer, maybe it's not so important that we exactly know. And of course, this can go into eschatology. It can go into things about what does eternal and forever mean. 
Some things matter. Some things don't matter so much. Sound doctrine. Probably nothing more important than to have our doctrine sound. Sometimes we're inclined to enjoy more experience. Talk about experience in, in life. Uh, we maybe like more sensational or emotional church life. And I, I think there's room for that. I think there's, there's, there's time for us to have good testimony time of what the Lord's delivered us from and, and we're experiencing so much wonderful things. There's a right time and a place for that. The fact of the matter is that doctrine is really, really important. Much more important than someone's experience. Doesn't negate the fact that we care about experience. If you don't have doctrine straight, you probably won't have your practice straight either. Beliefs determine behavior. There's direct correlation between belief and behavior. When you know better, you do better. At least you have the foundation to do better. You know how to live better. Sound doctrine is important because, because we need to be able to distinguish, to distinguish truth from untruth. The Bible says many prophets or have gone out into the world in John verse, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus says there are tares among wheat. And you need to know the difference between tares and wheat. The best way to spot a counterfeit is to be familiar with the real thing. To identify the lie, we must know the truth. Sound doctrine is important because, it, because of its end. Sound doctrine leads to life. This is going into a passage later in 1 Timothy. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. It's really important to have it right. On the other hand, sound or on sound doctrine leads to ruin. And Jesus spoke about the great crash of the, of the house that was built on the sand. Jesus wrote of false teachers whose condemnation was sealed. It says, their crime was teaching on sound doctrine, changing the grace of God into a license for immorality. We see that in Jude chapter 1. In verse 8 of our text today, Paul points out that law is good when it's used properly. So obviously, law can be used improperly. or It says here, lawfully. Use it lawfully. We don't just toss law out because it's used wrongly by some people or disregard it, but we use it lawfully as the Bible calls us to. And I'm... You and I are very much aware that there are lots of preachers and teachers today who says we no longer need law in the New, in the New Testament age. We have the Holy Spirit and we have, this is a dispensation of grace. Who, who, needs, who needs law? God's law is written in my heart. You've heard those. And I'm 
you and I, we, we're very, very grateful for grace this morning. We, we need it so badly. Because living out the laws God has asked us to do, we, we, don't, we don't get it all right. His grace is badly needed because we often fall short and make missteps. Yeah, often. But that doesn't mean we throw the laws out just because we can't get it all right or that we shouldn't care about them. This is what Jesus said about law when he came here and started living on earth. Matthew 5, <clears throat> verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. You look at these verses and, well, let's see, heaven and earth hasn't yet passed away. We're still living in earth. And I think the law is still meant to serve us in some way. Help us to, to get our doctrine straight. To live out our faith. And then Jesus says, Whosoever shall do and teach them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. New Covenant believers have the privilege of having some of those laws or portions of those laws fulfilled. Uh, we talked about this at our recent communion. Those ceremonial laws, those daily rituals of sacrificing, Jesus has come and fulfilled that once and for all. No more blood sacrifices needed. There are other laws, however, that God has brought over from the Old Covenant into the New and established them as for His church today. As you read the Gospels, we see Jesus often using the words, Have ye not read? But I say unto you, and he enforces something at a greater level than what they did under the Old Covenant. In verses 9 and 10 of our text, Paul goes on to explain um, the purpose of, of, of law, New Testament law. And I want us to notice here who it's made for. I'm just going to read a piece of this here. It says, in the NIV, it says, For lawbreakers, rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers rather than honoring them, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. And if you think you're off the hook because you're not inclined to do any of those, it says, for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so that, again, that highlights the importance of knowing what sound doctrine is. The law was, is given to point out to man that he comes up short and shows him his need of grace, his need of a redeemer. Romans 3.10 reminds us that there is no one righteous, not even one. We need God. Romans 6.23, we know that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. You look at these verses like 9 and 10 and you easily see that the use of the law is, is to expose sin, restrain sin, bring us to conviction of it. No, it don't save us from sin. But it, help, it makes us realize that we need Jesus in our lives. And certainly we need His Holy Spirit to help us in these things. The value of teaching God's commands is not to place a burden of perfection or, or legalism on believers, but to expose what displeases God and the sin we are to avoid. That, that's the purpose for law. It's not to make life difficult for us. It's not to make it legalistic for us. But to expose to us what God loves and what he hates. What he wants us to be involved in and what he wants us to stay far away from. And I've just arranged a few of these words in a statement for our consideration for Wednesday evening uh, men's meeting. I hope you'll be okay with the value of teaching and adhering to a church covenant is not to place a burden or legalism on its members but to remind us often what God loves and what he hates it's what it's there for maybe that's more simplistic than it should be but you know if we actually would love the Lord our God with all our heart with all our soul with all our mind we probably wouldn't need many laws in our lives would we but we're not quite that good. We're not, we don't get it quite that. We don't get it done. If we'd love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, all our mind, 24-7, everything we've got, we, we probably wouldn't need many laws in our lives. The better or the more we love and obey God's laws and commands, the less need we have for them. And that's probably why many of us don't, don't struggle much with a lot of these sins that are listed in verse 9 and 10. We, we love God too much. So we don't need those laws. But there's other areas in our lives where we don't do as well. The better or more we love and obey God's laws and commands, the less need we have for them. And I think the same thing can be said about church standards. The more we love God, the less we have to go and see if we line up with Him. The more we love and appreciate Him and His gifts to us, the less standards we need to remind us of the debt we owe Him. And I think it was um, Matt, Brother Matt that talked about the debt we owe God, the debt we owe brothers sisters it's certainly not hard to see this truth as you look at this list of ugly sins and deeds in verses 9 and 10 the righteous man really should be pretty pretty far from living out these ugly sins I have it in the King James here now knowing this that the law is not made for a righteous man but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, 
for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. We, we all know this. I think we're all persuaded this morning that we don't get saved by, or get saved or stay saved by obeying God's law. The Bible says we are saved by grace through faith. The law is very good for us because it shows us that we need to be saved. The law pronounces condemnation on us because it is intended to drive us towards Christ. Sadly, today we live in an age full of relativism that denies truth, denies that there is sin, denies that there is wrong. Many who, there's many who say that we can just live the way we want to. We can live any way we would like to. And they're saying that the only wrong thing is telling us that we're wrong. Intolerance. And so we come to this passage and we see that that's not what Paul was instructing Timothy. He wanted him to be bold for sound doctrine. Confront false doctrine. This morning, we're encouraged that Jesus, while he was on earth, he confronted false teaching. He warned what would happen if people followed that kind of teaching. And we recognize and we clearly see that he wasn't always appreciated for it. The majority of the Apostle Paul's writings is in the context of confronting false teachers. In Corinth, he encountered the abuse of spiritual gifts like tongues, healings. In Galatia, he confronted the abuse of the laws as a means of salvation and sanctification. In, Seth, in Thessalonica, he confronted false teaching about end times, eschatology. In most of his books and letters, he confronts false teaching. And again, like Jesus, he wasn't always appreciated for it. Today, we must do the same. Doctrine matters. The law shows God's condemnation of a sinner. If we had no measure of right and wrong, we would be hard-pressed to know that we need a Savior. Think about that. How would you know you need a Savior if there was no measure of right and wrong? What sin is? what God thinks about sin. This morning I'm grateful for both law and gospel. Both are really, really important for us. And so I'd just close with a few words of appreciation for law that God has given us. The law without the gospel, without the good news, is, diagnose, is diagnosis without remedy. It tells you what's wrong with you, but without the good news you don't have a way forward. The gospel without the law is simply the good news of salvation for people who otherwise wouldn't know they need it. How would you know that you need the good news if there wasn't a law? If we never knew what sin is and what its consequences are, why would we get saved? Have you ever thanked God for law?
Have you ever thanked him that you understand the definition of sin and an awareness of how badly he hates it? Galatians 3, verse 24. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. And someone has suggested that that Greek image of the schoolmaster is better defined by the school bus or the school bus driver as it takes students to learning, to being taught, to, being, to an understanding. And so the law is this vehicle that is used by God to transport or drive us to Christ for the remedy of our sins. You think about how badly Jesus wants to save us, cleanse us. He really wants us to experience this. In fact, it's the very reason that he came to earth to begin with, to save us from our terrible sickness of living in sin. Let's kneel for prayer.